God of wilderness, your son was baptized and tempted, same as us. Open our ears and our hearts to receive you now. Show us you are with us, even in our struggle. And let us not ignore the spirit among us as we accept your words today. Amen. Today's scripture comes from Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chafe that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. In the left half of your Bible, there's this thing called the Old Testament. Uh, and some of you may have heard of it. Uh, we often as Christians don't in, get into it as much, but if you read it, you will find this long history of this people of Israel. And it's sort of a roller coaster of ups and downs of a man named Abram who's called by God to have, be the father of many nations, but then he can't father any children. And finally, he has children and his children has children and his great grandson Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. This seems like a bad thing, but turns around and is a good thing because there is a famine and Joseph ends up saving the entire family. And they stay in Egypt for a while, which seems like a good thing, until a pharaoh comes along who doesn't know the story of Joseph. And the people of Israel end up in slavery. We'll call that a bad thing. Then a man named Moses, around 1400 B.C., comes and leads the people out of Egypt and into the desert. But the desert is so hard to travel in that they ask to go back to slavery. They finally get to the land that they were supposed to have, but they have to conquer it, and it takes a long time. Then, after they're there a while, they get into some trouble. They keep doing what's right in their own eyes, and God has to bring judges up to deliver them and to teach them. Judges like Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. And then guess what happens in the next generation? They do the same darn thing. Ups and downs, highs and lows. Eventually they ask for a king. They get Saul and they get David somewhere around uh, 1000 BC. But kings aren't all they're cracked up to be either, are they? They demand loyalty and they demand taxes. And soon we have fights over whose children should be kings. We get a divided nation that is eventually so weak it gets carried off into exile. They get to come back finally from exile, from the brink of extinction as a people. Should be a good day, right? But they don't stay loyal then either. Back and forth, good and bad, ups and downs, Israel goes. And all this leads to a lot of natural questions, right? What kind of God is this that we're serving that would let us go through all of these things? Is God truly good? And if God is truly good, how do we explain all this bad stuff that's happened to us? And if we're really God's chosen people, how come we're sometimes chosen to be in all these bad circumstances? 
How can we have faith through these ups and downs? What kind of life should we live that would honor God? And how do we earn God's blessing and how do we avoid God's judgment? Isn't it interesting that Israel, through all these ups and downs, comes up with a lot of the same questions that you and I have today and that the world continues to ask? And so what the poets and musicians of Israel did was they wrote about these themes. They wrote about these questions. Through the good days and through the terrible days, they somehow tried to write words and hymns and songs and liturgies that would help them understand this ongoing discussion with God. This is, I think, what poets and musicians do at their best. Sometimes musicians don't do that. For an example, you could see a song like My Achy Breaky Heart. Not quite on the level we're talking about here, right? But poets and musicians have a way of capturing those questions, right? And over time, the people of Israel put together all these poems, all these liturgies, into what we would today call the Psalms. The Psalms were the hymn book. They were the liturgy. They were the poetry of this wrestling for generations with who God was and what it meant to follow God. And if you go and you read them, you'll find some that might surprise you in how raw and honest they are. Listen to this from Psalm 44. Awake. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? You ever been through a really bad situation where you pray that kind of prayer to God? See, we're, we're taught not to pray with those kind of honest words. You're not supposed to question God, right? Well, the psalmist does. The psalmist goes right for it. Some of the psalms are, are laments like that. Some are royal psalms. Some are psalms of praise and uh, especially praise through creation. Like Psalm 8, you may be familiar with. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and moon and stars, which have all been set in place. There's all kinds of words and all kinds of poems. Some written for specific instances. Some that are written for specific purposes, like Psalm 120 to 134. If you open your Bible, you'll find those labeled as the songs of ascent. Those were the psalms that were read when you walked up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a hill, and you always ascended to Jerusalem. It was the high point, and there were a set of psalms that you would sing on your way to, Jer to Jerusalem. That was the psalms of ascent. There are all kinds of themes, occasions, and psalms, but what, what they all do is give us God words, ways of speaking to God and about God and hearing from God in different contexts and letting God speak back to us. And throughout history, both Jews and Christians have used the psalms in worship and in their daily reading to help them understand these kind of themes. How many of you can remember singing psalms in church? Anybody have that context? It used to be that's what Presbyterians almost exclusively did. You would sing the psalms, or if you didn't have a psalm book, the leader would tell you what the next line was, and then you'd all sing it, and then they would say it in the next line, and then you would sing it. For years, for generations, Christians and Jews both have daily read the psalms just to marinate in them. To, to saturate themselves in these God words. Because the Psalms are a creative work of imagination, not pretending that the world is okay, but defiantly believing 
that God is at work for good even when we don't feel like it. At the same time, they are seeking to live a righteous life that honors God and is worthy of his honor. But we don't use the Psalms the same way anymore, do we? We've sort of lost the practice of the Psalms, of daily reading the Psalms, and I think we've lost something because of it. I think that for so many people throughout history, the cornerstone of their spiritual life, the place where they went to find faith, encouragement, hope, and comfort were the Psalms, and we don't know how to use them anymore. So let me give you a quick crash course in using the psalm. First, you've got to understand a few things about the psalms. The word psalms is, the word psalm actually is from a word that means to pluck or twang a string. Okay? It's, it's a hymn book. That's what it is. They are not chapters. If you look in your Bible, what you're going to find is all your other chapters, most of your other chapters are going to be labeled 1, 2, 3, 4. But if you go to the psalms, it's going to be listed as Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, because they're not chapters their hymns. There are 150 psalms organized into five books. So if you opened up your Bible right now and looked at chapter one, you would see book one. There's actually five books of the psalms to mirror the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of 150, 116 of them have some kind of title where it lists some kind of author, although the phrase, a psalm of David, doesn't necessarily mean or have to be translated that he wrote it. It could be that it's attributed to him, (coughs) belonging to him or about him. Many of the psalms have authors listed, like David with at least 75, the sons of Korah with 10, Asaph, Solomon, Moses, Ethan, and there's even a couple psalms attributed to somebody named Herman which I think is the funniest biblical name. I didn't know there was a Herman until this week, but there's a Herman. The other 48 are anonymous. Some of them are considered to be written potentially by Ezra after the people come back. But think about that. All those different names, all those people involved, over a thousand years are represented in the Psalms. Over a thousand years of wrestling with God are represented in the Psalms. What a resource of faith that are sitting there for us to be read. You also find words that are are not able to be translated, one of which is the word amen. We're not 100% sure what amen kind of means. It sort of means like let it be or truly or verily, but for the most part, they just leave it as amen because we're not quite sure. And if you read the Psalms, you'll find this word selah about 71 times. And we have no idea what that word means. We think it's probably a musical notation. The biggest thing you have to understand if you're going to read the Psalms is that you are used to a different kind of poetry than the Psalms are. Okay, How many of you have read poems in your life? How many of you, when you were in school, had to write really bad poems? You remember that? Well, we are used to uh, poems that rhyme. Okay, and by rhyme, I mean their sounds go together. Here's one of our great poems uh, from one of our great poets. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Horton Hears a Who by Dr. Seuss, anybody? Okay, you're used to poetry that rhymes the ends of the lines. Okay, Jewish poetry didn't do that. In fact, throughout history, most poetry didn't do that. 
Okay, but you're just used to it because that's the easiest kind of poetry and it's what you learned in school. In Jewish poetry, they will sometimes, instead of connecting the ends of words, they will connect the beginnings of words. So if you read your Bible, you read Psalm 118, you're going to find these little notations in there. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. It's the Hebrew alphabet. And the words that are in each of those sections sort of relate to that Hebrew letter. It starts with that Hebrew letter and it plays with themes of that Hebrew letter. You can see that if you read, your, if read Psalm 118. Most of the time, however, the Jewish poetry rhymes thoughts. So it has things that are in parallel or next to each other that don't sound the same, but are similarly related. So let's look for a moment at Psalm 1 which forms the introduction with Psalm 2 to the entire book of the Psalms. It says, let me read the beginning again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, blessed is the man kind of gives us a hint that this is a wisdom psalm. It's about how you live your life. Um, kind of like a proverb. Notice <coughs> the parallelism. The problem for people is when they get around the wrong sorts of people. What kind of people? Well, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And you see how they're all in parallel? They don't rhyme with each other, but they rhyme in thought. Okay? Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Okay? Those are meant to be in parallel. Those actually rhyme in thought. Notice, too, that the man walks stands and sits. Those are in parallel also, but they rhyme also, but they, there's a difference. Did everybody see that? Instead of them all meaning the same thing, you got a guy who's walking, and then you got a guy who's standing, and then you got a guy who's sitting. Okay? It's a slowing down. Okay? Some of you have experienced this in the idea of getting older, right? But this is a man who has direction. He's following God's lead, but he gets around the wrong people. And what happens? He slows down. He stops. He sits. He doesn't go where God wants him to anymore. See, the parallel of the, the, the wicked sinners and scoffers, they stay the same. But this man is slowing down. And we've all known people that have done that, right? Gotten around the wrong people and slowed down. But this good man does not do that. Instead, what does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. We don't like that word meditating in, as Christians because we think it's like a Buddhist thing. But there it is in our Bible. The difference is uh, in Buddhist meditation, you clear your mind and think of nothing. In Christian meditation, you focus on the things of God and you fill your mind with the Holy Spirit. But other than that, it's really kind of a similar process. We, we sit in the word and we meditate. We think on it. We dwell on it. And blessed is the man who, instead of walking after all those bad people and actually slowing down, stays in the word of God and keeps moving. Why? Because then the scripture gives us a great metaphor, the way great poems do. He's like a good, healthy tree in a good environment that doesn't wither but produces good crops. Not like those wicked people who sit around and do nothing except scoff and accept... Um, uh, are sinning, they are like chaff that's just blown away. 
See, the Psalms are not complicated. That was not that hard to understand. In fact, the Psalms are deceptively simple a lot of times. But that's the point. The point is for us to read them and sit with them and think about them, sit under them and marinate in them so they become part of who we are, so that we're saturated in these God words, so that we can think in our lives, man, I'm starting to slow down because of some of these other people that I'm around. Maybe I need to watch who I'm around. Maybe I'm not producing the fruit that I need to. And so for Christians for centuries have taken psalms like this, taken the rest of the Psalter and every day read one. Every, or read, if it's a long one like 118, read part of one. And so listen, I would challenge you to get into the psalms. What would your life be like if you read one every day? Or you read a couple every day. That's what they're meant for. That's what the tradition has done. And I'm telling you, these God words, if you just sit with them, if you marinate them, they become a part of who you are. Then you will be the righteous one, the blessed one who follows after God, the one who's not blown away, but actually receives the blessing of God. At least that's what the people who came before you in this faith thought. Try it. This summer, try it. I dare you. A psalm a day. I think you're going to find your faith really grows because of it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.